Thanks for listening to the Northridge Christian Podcast. At Northridge, we exist to help people move closer to Christ. We believe that following Jesus is a journey, and we want to help you through that journey any way we can. Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be with you. Our church family sends greetings. They are in worship this weekend, even now at this very moment. Uh, I felt a real attachment here when we were uh, getting ready this morning. I saw that video, Choosing Victory, and I thought, man, that looks familiar. And a sister in Christ in our church family wrote that curriculum. And I'm going to go home and let her know how it is spreading to just encourage other women elsewhere, literally across the country now. And uh, I know that uh, Tori will be incredibly encouraged in the faith. So be blessed as you use that. You know, uh, at the creek, our moms long ago taught us to share. You know, when we went to kindergarten, you had an extra chocolate chip cookie, you learned to share. And I want to thank you. You have shared such great hospitality with me this weekend. Nobody makes sweet tea like people in Georgia. I want you to know that, okay? It's, it's uh, worth rocking for. All right, now we're going to get into the Word of God. I understand that there is a time limit here, and we'll see how the Holy Spirit moves, all right? Uh, wherever I go, I'm always told that by uh, worship folk. Now, I want to start with a love story, and you will really enjoy this love story. Long ago, in the late 1800s, there was a guy by the name of Ollie, and he fell in love with a young lady named Bess. He took her out on a picnic one day. They lived near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There was a lake in the park, and this was back in the day when, uh, let's go ahead and leave that picture. Is that up? All right, there it is. Uh, There was this uh, lake in the park, and it was an era when ladies would wear long dresses and carry a parasol, and the guys would wear a heavy wool suit, even on a hot summer day. And he took her for a picnic lunch. He rode this heavy wooden rowboat out to the island there in that lake. And uh, he put a blanket under the tree and served her lunch. And Bess looked at Ollie and said, Ollie, what? No ice cream? So Ollie, wanting to win her heart, he got into the boat and he rowed back to the concession. He bought the ice cream. And on that hot summer day, he rowed as quickly as he could back to that little island to serve that ice cream before it melted. And he said, here it is, Bess. And Bess looked at it and she said, what, Ollie? No hot fudge? So back into the boat he went and he rowed back to the concession. He bought the hot fudge. And halfway back to that island, Ollie stopped And he floated on that water in the hot sun, sweating profusely. And it was in that moment, listen carefully, that Ali Evinrude designed the outboard motor. Okay? And all you boat people down here, all you boat people, now you know where you got your motors from. Happened in the early 1900s. Well, you know what? He won her heart. And uh, they fell in love. They got married. And they lived happily ever after. It's a great love story. People enjoy love stories. And that's where we're going today in the Word of God. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth, only four chapters long, and it is a love story with a punch. Now we're going to be looking at some details that I hope you've not noticed before. I hope that the Lord Jesus speaks powerfully to you through what some people would think is, what an old, irrelevant story. So here we go, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, 
They went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. There is a plethora of discovery in those five verses. We're going to break it down piece by piece, and we're going to see how the Lord can speak possibly to us right now. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, can we know what those days were like? Absolutely. All we have to do is turn one page back in our Bibles and just go to the last page of the book of Judges, in the days when the judges ruled. And right there, last page of Judges, last chapter, last verse, verse 25, chapter 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, it was a time of anarchy. If you had a goat and I wanted your goat, I took your goat. I did as I saw fit. There was no rule of law in the day when the judges ruled. So here's our first observation. The days were dark. The days were morally dark. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now during those days, let's go on in the text, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now just think that through with me for a moment. That's huge. Bethlehem. In Hebrew, it means house, Beth, Beit, Lahem, house of bread. Bethlehem was the breadbasket of Israel. Bethlehem was where people could go to to find food. It was that agricultural center of that nation. It may be that you've gone to Israel a time or two on a tour, and you still see that Bethlehem is an agricultural uh, productivity center of that country. So even the house of bread had no bread. The famine was so severe. And that would tell us, here's our second observation, the days were difficult. Not only were they dark morally, but they were very difficult. So difficult that people even in the breadbasket of Israel were displaced. Now let's go on in the text. So here's this guy, and his name is Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. Now check this out. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Names speak volumes. Remember, in the day of Scripture, people were given names that had meaning. For example, our beloved Jesus. The angel says to Joseph in a dream, you will give him the name Jesus, for he will, say it with me, save his people from their sins. For Jesus will save his people from their sins. The meaning of the name Jesus is he saves. And did he live up to the meaning of his name? Undeniably. So names had meaning. Malon and Killian have meaning. Moreover, it was the responsibility of the dad that when that child was born to name his child. Hence, Joseph, you give him the name Jesus. Elimelech would name his two boys the moment they popped out of the womb, and he named them Malon and Killian, and those names in Hebrew, they mean sickly and diseased. Imagine that. 
That would tell us if we peek around the corner of that verse, the corner of those names, that would tell us that more than likely Naomi had two troubled pregnancies. Maybe she almost lost those babies while she was expecting them. Maybe she nearly miscarried. Maybe they nearly died in the process of birth. They are named sickly and diseased. The days, here it is, here's our third observation, were marked with disease. The days were marked with disease. And notice, while they were in Moab, right there in verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Her husband died, and she was left with her two sons. So quite obviously, here's our next observation. The days were marked with death. And where is it happening? It's happening in Moab. Remember when Lazarus died in the New Testament, Brother to uh, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, they had friends who traveled there to Bethany to grieve with them. In this case, Naomi would have no one with whom to grieve. Her sons were there, yes, but nobody else, no close friends, no extended family would be there to grieve because they are in a foreign country and Jews, they would bury their loved ones on the day that they died. Hence, she would bury her husband in foreign soil. Can you imagine being in Nepal on a mission trip and dying and being buried in foreign soil? That would only aggravate, that would only deepen the grief. The days were marked with horrific death, grief. Let's go on in the text. The boys, she was left with her two sons. Verse (laughs) 4, they married Moabite women. One named Orpah, the other Ruth. That's huge. Naomi could have said to her boys, boy, if your father were alive right now, because good Jewish boys were to marry who? Good Jewish girls, that's right. And they're marrying Moabite women? The Moabites were God's enemies. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms, it says that Moab was God's wash basin, his scrub sink. That's how much God thought of Moab. And these two good Jewish boys are marrying Moabite women? you got to be kidding. And so the days were marked. Here's our next observation with disappointment. How disappointing. You boys know better than that. But they went ahead and did it. And then the boys, Melon and Killian, verse 5, they also up and died. It looks like they lived up to their what? Their names. So both boys predecease their mom. Both boys die. And so here goes Naomi through all of that grief again, burying her boys next to her husband there in foreign soil. Incredible. The grief would have been so profound. And then notice it says she was left without her two sons and her husband. In that day, no social security, no life insurance policies to redeem. No, this woman was in despair. She was destitute. The days were marked with despair. Incredible. Her only hope was to beg. Her sons, who should have cared for their widowed mom, are now dead She would beg. She could not remarry. She was too old. Marriage was for the purpose of begetting children, of bringing children into this world. She was past childbearing age. Her future looked more than grim. Now, let's just push pause here on the story of Naomi, Elimelech, Malon, and Killian. A lot of people think that this book that you and I have is old-fashioned, it's irrelevant, doesn't speak into life today, Uh, I would like to encourage that person to think again. Let's look at that list. Are these days morally dark in our country? 
off the chart. Last year, Indianapolis set its third record year in a row for murders. Nothing to be proud of. These days are morally dark. Record numbers of people are dying from drug addiction all across our country. These days are morally dark. Crime is rising in so many different ways. These days are morally dark. A shooting just days ago, 17 more innocent people lost their lives. Who went to school that day expecting to die? Nobody did. These days are morally dark. What was written thousands of years ago looks like life today in the year 2018 in the good old U.S. of A. Are these days difficult for anybody? You know anybody going through a hard time right now? Do you know anybody who lost a job, was laid off? Do you know anybody who is diseased, fighting an illness of some kind, a battle with cancer, maybe Lou Gehrig's disease? In our church family, the sheriff, uh, or excuse me, the uh, uh, chief of the entire Indianapolis Fire Department, 1,500 firefighters, the chief, a member of our church family, worked in the nursery, diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And then very shortly after that, his brother diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And in very short order, both of them are now dead. Do we know people who are struggling with disease? They're all around us. How about people who are struggling with grief? Why? Because somebody has died. Somebody that they loved dearly has now departed this life. And grief is so profound How about that couple who'd been married for 67 years and the husband dies and the wife reaches over into the bed for the first time in 67 years and it's empty. And she can't sleep because she's weeping. Do we know anybody who's grieving? How about people who have been disappointed? Did somebody walk away from a marriage wherein they said, yes, I do, I do, I do. But yet now that promise has been broken for whatever reason. And somebody is disappointed, not only a spouse, but little children are disappointed because mom walked away or dad walked away. Do we know people who have been disappointed because a promise was made to them, maybe at work, maybe someplace to have that promotion, but yet they were set aside, off to the side, and somebody else was put into that chair? Do we know people who are disappointed in life? How about in a place of despair, in this beautiful place called Milledgeville, and you got a pretty sweet little place. you got a great thing going on here in this town. I'm confident that there are broken people in despair, ready to call it quits, ready to put an end to it all. I'm confident. Even in our suburban existence in Indianapolis, we have found single moms living with their children homeless in minivans. There are broken people in despair all around us. There are people all it's just that we don't see them we have places to go people to see things to do and we are moving through life in a great blur we do not see them jesus not only saw them when he saw the crowds 
the harassed and helpless ones, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And that word compassion is a medical term in Greek. It means bowel. From deep within him, great empathy came welling up from within Jesus, and he did something about it. Not only did he see him, but he counted them. Think with me for a moment. In the gospel according to Luke, there were some guys, and they said, Lord, have mercy on us. And he turned, and he looked, and he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. Healed of what? Anybody? Healed of leprosy. That's right. Healed of leprosy. And then one comes back, falls in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, has only one come back to give praise to God? Where are the other? Oh, you know the story. Where are the other nine? That's the first time that little factoid comes up in the story. That tells you and me, Jesus not only saw him, them, but he also counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, there are ten of you. Hey, go show yourselves to the priest. Jesus not only saw broken, hurting people, but he counted them. How many people out of 40,000 in Milledgeville are broken, hurting people who are far from God? Do you see them? Do you count them? They're all around you. They live across the street. They live next door. They go to school with you. They, they show up at work where you work, just like in my neighborhood. They're all around me. And you know what? Some of them are like Naomi. Let's push resume just for a moment. Let's get back into this love story, okay? Back in the love story, chapter 1. Would you notice with me, please, verse 20? The famine is over, and Ruth has gone back to uh, Bethlehem. Excuse me, Naomi has. Naomi's gone back to Bethlehem, and notice when she's coming into town, the women there notice her, and she, she says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara. Call me Mara. And that is the root of the name Mary, and it means bitter. It means bitter. Now watch these comments. She's telling her girlfriends from years ago, don't call me Naomi. No, you call me Mara, because the, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now we're going to put the brakes on right here and look at her comments And we're going to see something that's very important. There's a rule in interpreting the Bible that says if something's repeated, it's important. God wants us to see something. Look at her words. She says, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Then she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Not once, but four times, Naomi blamed whom? God. Exactly. Four times, Naomi shakes her fist in the face of God. She points the finger of blame in his direction. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. This woman is angry with God. All right, go back to that list again. Let's push pause, bam, on that love story. Those hurting, broken people that you know in life, do any of them blame God? Are they angry with God? If you and I are in a right walk with Jesus, we know that he's not the one to blame, right? It's the enemy, the evil one. 
There's no need to blame God. But you and I have got to understand something. This text looks like life today. Now, what are we going to do about it? Well, here's the good news, the good news of Jesus. I see Jesus in this book so powerfully. Let's push resume on the love story. Everyone enjoys a love story. And check this out, chapter 1. We're going to see the response of Ruth to her mother-in-law. Now, remember, Ruth also is widowed. And when the famine is over, Naomi says to both Orpah and Ruth, go on home, go back to your mom and your dad. Go back to your families. They're, they're still alive. You have a chance. You can get married again. You can have kids. Orpah says, well, let me think about that. Hmm, okay, I will. And off she goes. All right. But not Ruth. No, 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 no. You check out Ruth, chapter 1, right there, verse uh, 15, 16, 17. Ruth replied, don't urge me to turn back from you. No, where you go, I will What? Go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be, and where you die, there I will die, and there I will be buried. Incredible. May the Lord, the righteous judge, uh, judge me ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. That is an incredible statement of love. An incredible statement of commitment. Now, what I see there in the the response of Ruth are two types of love. First of all, there was an outward love. Where, Where do we get that? She says, hey, where you're going, I'm going. Where you're staying, I'm staying. Your people are going to become my people. Your God's going to become my God. It was an outward kind of a love. Because if we had time today, we could go into Ruth a little bit further and find out that her mom and dad were still living when she made this decision. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Boaz meets up with Ruth and falls in love with her, he says, you know what? I've heard about how you left your mom and your dad and you came to live with the people you did not know. So think that through with me. In that era of biblical history, people did not travel on average more than 100 miles from their home in their entire lifetime, in their entire lifetime. So that means when Ruth went to live in Bethlehem with Naomi, it was, hey, bye, mom, bye, dad. I'm not going to see you again. Hugs and kisses. Come here. It was the same thing with her nephews and nieces, with her brothers and sisters. It was goodbye for good. No snail mail, no email, no tweets, no cell phone, no contact for the rest of her earthly life. You talk about a sacrificial love, that's off the chart. It was an outward love, seen so incredibly by her actions. She had to learn a new culture, a new uh, currency. She had to learn how to read Hebrew. She had to learn how to speak Hebrew. Everything. That's just off the chart. An outward love. But her response also tells us of the second kind of love. It was an onward love. So easy to remember. It was an onward love. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. And where you die, I'm going to what? Die. And there I'm going to be buried. She did not tell her widowed mother-in-law, hey mom, listen, I'm going to take you back to Bethlehem. I'm going to find an efficiency for you. We're going to go to Goodwill. We're going to get some dish towels and some pots and pans. We're going to get you set up. Once you're all set up, I'm going back to my... She didn't say that. She didn't say, hey mom, I'm going to move in with you and I'm going to stay with you and then, you know, when you die, I'm going to have your funeral and then I'm going to go back. No, she said, I'm staying put and I'm going to be buried right next to you. You talk about an onward love that did not give up. That's off the chart. 
This looks so much like Jesus in outward love and in onward love. An outward love that is sacrificial and an onward love that does not give up. What does that look like in the church today? Would there be something that you and I could somehow uh, quantify, qualify this with a picture? Let me tell you the story of Denise and John. They are not at the creek, but their story is certainly known at the creek. They, some years ago, had their first child. His name, Paul. Baby Paul was born. And when baby Paul was born, he was born with all uh, manner of challenges. He nearly died during the birthing process, but the greatest, most grievous uh, ailment of all was that baby Paul was born blind because baby Paul was born without eyes. John and Denise were a part of the church, and when that happened, they became quite angry with God. So much so that John, when he tells the story, he said, I remember being in the hospital, standing in intensive care over my son, and I just said, God, you are a mean God. You are wicked. You do this to me, not to him. And from that day on, John had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing. From that day on, Denise and John left the church. There came a time when baby Paul went home from the hospital. And there were people in the church who knew what was going on. They knew that John and Denise were gone. One couple, Carl and Jerry Lynn, they went to the house knocking on the door. Hey, folks, come on. And the door remained closed. Jerry Lynn, when she would go get groceries for her family, she would get extra for Denise. She would take it down to the house, knock on the door. Come on, Denise, open up. And she wouldn't. When John would, or when Carl would take care of his yard, he'd go down and work in John's yard. Come on, John. Come on, buddy, open up. No response. One day, the four children of Carl and Jerry Lynn there were baking cookies, and mom said, what are, you do- what are you doing? And the kids, they said, we're baking cookies for baby Paul. And immediately, mom's heart fell because she knew there would be no response. The kids got done. They put them in a basket and whatnot. They went down to baby Paul's house, and there they stood, knocking on the door. The windows remained shuttered. The doors re- uh, door remained shut. They kept knocking on the door, and then, baby Paul, baby Paul, we have cookies for you. And there was a crack in the curtain, and the door slowly opened, and Denise fell into the arms of Jerry Lynn, sobbing. She said, come to dinner, please. You, John, baby Paul, come, please. Get out of this house. Come to our house. And they did. And after dinner, the four adults sitting at the table, they heard a sound that they had not heard before. And they thought, what is that? And they got up from the dinner table. They walked around the corner. And there, the four little children of Carl and Jerry Lynn were playing with baby Paul on the floor. They were tickling him and gently rolling him. And he was just giggling and laughing and smiling. And John said, we have never heard that before. 
Your kids play with him as if he were human. And Carl said he is, and how we love him. It wasn't long, you know where Carl and Jerry Lynn met John and Denise? They met them at the front door of the church. John and Denise came back. Carl and Jerry Lynn were at the door. Jerry Lynn just scooped up baby Paul in her arms, and she said, Ah, oh, I'm going to play with this little boy. I'm going to tickle him in the nursery. He's going to smile and learn about the love of Jesus for him. And you go in there, and you let Jesus love on you. John and Denise are alive in the faith today because somebody showed to them an outward love that kept going onward in their lives. If it can happen with people who are in Christ, think of how that can happen with people who are yet to come to Christ. It's incredible. 40,000 people all around you who will fill this place service upon service upon service as they see and experience your outward and your onward love in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you saw in the news or not, it wasn't that long ago, a student in Utah collided with a car. He was riding a motorcycle. He, uh, Brandon Wright, 21 years of age, a student at Utah State University, collided with that BMW, and Brandon is underneath the car, alive and unconscious. And people who saw the accident, as you can see, they came running over to that car, knowing that they have to get Brandon out from underneath that car. At any moment, that car could what? Explode, and all of them could be injured and or killed. But yet these people with a great act of outward sacrificial love, taking a risk, they go over to that car, they, they notice that he's still alive, and they lift that car together, and they pull him out. Brandon was in the hospital for a week. He had multiple surgeries, and I saw on the news when he was released, he was in a wheelchair being wheeled out of the hospital. The cameras were there, and he just started to sob, and he said, I would be dead today if they did not save me from the flames. And when I heard that news story, I realized this, that what one person could not do, a team of people can do together. A team of people can do together. And the book of Jude 23 tells us that you and I are to snatch them from the flames. That's why we exist. It all boils down to this, what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know it as well as I do, love never fails. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at northridge.online.